And this time we're going to be talking about some of the more, uh, the content of our confessions. What kinds of doctrines do we believe? And in preparing for this, we've been looking at some books about what is what do Reformed people believe, and one of the things that keeps coming up is these five points of Calvinism that seems to be all that Reformed people believe. Is that is that an accurate summation of, of Reformed belief, or how would you approach that question? Yeah, I mean, there's more than five points to Calvinism, a whole lot more. <laughs> um yeah, it is remarkable how, like, for, for many people at a popular level, um, when they just think Calvinism, all they think is a five points, right? Um, which, uh, you know, those are true, right? Those are, those are important aspects of what it means to be Reformed, um, but there's a lot more than five points to Calvinism. Um, and uh, I think, you know, actually when you understand the, the broader sweep of the Reformed tradition— those five points are are able to fit a little bit more, um, more nicely. I I always like to, you know, talk about um, the Reformed faith as having three three legs, like a three legged stool. That and by by this I mean there's 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 like three things that I think distinguish um, kind of confessional Reformed faith from other Protestant traditions. Um, at least especially the Baptistic ones, evangelical ones. One is that that five points piece, which is just a very high view of grace, which we'll come back to that. Um, the other one is what I um, I call, you know, uh, a sacramental understanding of the church. Um, like we believe in baptism and the Lord's Supper, that they're means of grace. And if you have a sacrament in which only the church can can perform that tend to make your understanding of church higher because you need to be there, right? So this inc- goes all the way to the liturgy. So so um, that second leg, which is often missing from most expressions of Reformed Church in America, is that that sacramental understanding of the church. And the third leg is one that um, I think of late has been broadly embraced by broad evangelicalism, which is you know um, a holistic view of mission or vocation, wide-angle kind of perspective. And here I'm thinking in particular of understanding that um, sometimes we talk about vocation a lot, right? Like how God, you know, changes how I work and how I think and all these interconnections. And I think the Reformed faith just has this really big picture perspective where, um, you know, like we're able to talk in meaningful ways about um, how the Christian life, um, vocational discipleship is a term that Keller likes to use, um, you know, impacts all these different areas of our life. So it's, it's a really holistic kind of spirituality. So those are the three-legged stool that I often talk about. But, um, but I think it's actually good to, to look at the confessions themselves. And in our tradition, we have, we have th- uh, what's called the three forms of unity. And it includes three three uh, confessional documents, the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, and so I think it's helpful to understand just kind of a, a big picture, like what are these documents about? What's distinct about them? What's a little bit about their history and background? So the Canons of Dort, that's, that's where these five points of Calvinism come from. 
Um, and what what was it that was bringing those up? Well, uh, Dort is actually the of the three the three forms. Dort is the latest. In other words, it's the old, it's the the youngest, but it's was still written in 1618, 1619. And uh, even though Dort is the most well-known of the Reformed documents, it's the most scholastic, it's the most technical and difficult to understand, and it's the most narrow. It's a very, like, this is really important to understand. It's a very narrow document. It was it was actually, uh, you know, um, a, sit, a synodical meeting of, Reformed um, professors and pastors in the Netherlands gathered to uh, to deal with uh, the teaching of Jacob Arminius and his followers, the Remonstrants, right? And they were teaching five points, which were the opposite <laughs> of the five points uh, that we now have, right? Uh, so it's uh, a very unique sort of kind of polemical context in which these come to us. And Arminius himself was a seminary professor. So this is a this is a pretty high level discussion of theology. Yeah. Yeah, it's very high level. And it's also a judicial document, right? It's it's a synodical it's like it's a synodical document, right? And it reads like a synodical document, right? So it's it doesn't have like fl- you know nice flowing, you know, prose and it's it's very technical. Um and 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 it's just helpful to understand that that's that's what it's about. Um, that doesn't mean it's wrong or bad or anything like that. But what's really important about the document, which I think, again, I mean, we we kind of get frustrated sometimes that that people just think reform faith equals the five points and predestination. But for sure, those are really central and they're really important. Doctrines of grace are very important, and that and that's what really what the the canons of Dort do is they. They really elaborate and and make explicit what was kind of assumed in earlier confessional teachings in the Heidelberg and the Belgic. Um, what's interesting about both of those documents, the Heidelberg Catechism has no mention of predestination explicitly, and the Belgic Confession actually only has one article, and it's it's very brief. And so um, the the Kens of Dort really take those and kind of elaborate out of it. And you get the what you know. What are the five points? And we're not going to go into the details of the five points, but I'll just mention them briefly here. Um, you know, so the five points are total depravity, um, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, again, in a in a in a later episode, we'll break down what those mean. You know, this is the tulip, right? Um, but I think, um, I think to back up a little bit, you're, you might ask, well, why is this document in there if it's like difficult and, um, you know, it's it's not an easy accessible doctrine? I think it's really important. I, the way I like to think about it is this: is um, Dort is like the operating system for the church's doctrines of grace. So when you think about an operating system. <laughs> now, if you're a computer person, uh, computer science person, you are responsible for uh, actually constructing operating systems, right? So it's this complex sort of coding of zeros and ones and all kinds of different things. But like when I, as a non-computer person, I just have my screen 
the interface of the screen, right? And I have these apps that do what they do and launch. And But behind that is this really complex operating system that makes things work properly, speak to each other properly, interact and all that with all kinds of bugs and, and, and viruses. And, you know, Dort, I think the category that's helpful to think about Dort in terms of is it's the operating system of grace, right? The, you know, it's a complicated doctrine, doct- document necessarily because issues of grace and salvation and freedom and sin are, are really complicated, right? So as the average layperson, you don't have to understand all that stuff in order to benefit from it, right? Like I don't have to understand how the operating system of my computer, my Android phone works in order to benefit and use it. And it's the same in the life of the church, right? Um, but if you're a seminary professor or you're a pastor or you're in a teaching position in the church, it's important to understand at a basic level, at least, how these, why these doctrines are important. I was going to say, I don't, I don't think we've ever actually recited the canons of Dort in church. But when you're preaching, th- these are kind of what are in the background of your mind when you're when you're doing that preaching exactly right it's sort of like it's like grammar right <laughs> you know we w- when we put sentences together like we assume english grammar and syntax we don't we don't have to name it and itemize it you know um like i'm going to conjugate my verb this way you know and so that's a little bit about how theology works and how it interacts right and so i the one the one point i would say um about dort before we move on to the belgic confession um, as just a witness in there is just the, the seriousness of the Reformed tradition intellectually of grappling really deeply with the scriptures and with difficult topics and not being afraid to wrestle with the mystery of God in a, in a humble way. And I, I think that, uh, you know, we'll talk about it when we get to it next time, but there, there's a lot of misperceptions even about what that document says, um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of subtlety and, and nuance there. Um, but I, I think, you know, back to the point you made, Ben, um, a moment ago about how, you know, when I'm preaching or like, I'm not always, I'm not quoting the, the canons, but they're, but they're operational, right? Like they're, they're functioning in the background. And, and, and this is just a really important point about what it means to be a confessional church. Like, to be a confessional church isn't necessarily always to be a church that's drawing attention to ourselves as confessional, like saying, you know, Heidelberg says, or Belgic says, or Dort says, but it, it's to have our life and our, you know, our practice shaped by the actual content of the confessions. And so I think that's just, you know, know that, you know, even though you might not hear on a Sunday any reference whatsoever to being reformed or the confessions, like they're still working in the background because myself as a pastor and our leaders, you know, like these are really important. That's actually something that has been going on for the entire life of the Christian Reformed Church, our denomination. Uh, Back in the 1920s, there was a disagreement about theology, a doctrine called common grace. And when, when there was a report made to Synod about this, they... The report first laid out what does Scripture say on this issue, and then laid out what do the confessions say on this issue, and and that's how our church deals with issues. It it looks at Scripture and it looks at the confessions and how do these things 
come together, but we are bound by um, both of these things. Yeah, and I think there's an important point here to make about how confession, again, if you just grew up in an evangelical church and you think, you know, our only authority is the Bible, all we need is the Bible, um, for sure, Scripture is the ultimate final authority. But part of what I, you know, in the first episode in here, what we're trying to say is this, is that to be fully biblical, you need confessions, right? A sign of a true tradition is that it leads you more deeply into the scriptures. It doesn't lead you away from the scriptures, right? And so that's to say that we, you know, we realize that these are historical documents and there's sometimes ways that they frame things that are, you know, maybe not the best or draw too sharp of a distinction. And we're fine, you know, correcting those in the light of that. So we're not saying the confessions are inerrant by any means, but what we recognize is we kind of, as readers of the Bible, we realize that we don't come like, like to the Bible as if it's all clear and apparent to us that we stand within this tradition, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit that orients us to the scriptures in a proper way. And, and so like, there's a kind of accountability we have and, and humility before the scriptures, um, realizing that the spirit is still at work, you know, help, helping clarify things. Right. So, so the next, the next, um, the next conf- uh, document in the three forms is called the Belgic Confession. And actually, the Belgic Confession is the oldest of all three confessions. It was written in 1561 by um, a man named Guido de Bray. And this uh, is a confession, right, in the technical sense, right? Like it's called the Belgic Confession. Um, it's not a catechism. It's not a canon. Um, and the Belgic Confession for me personally, is my favorite of the three, um, even over the Heidelberg. Um, I think it is the the most, the clearest expression of the Reformed faith in that it, it just sort of it has, it's structured in terms of articles, right? So it starts with um, in the question of God, goes to Revelation, Scripture, election, Trinity, all these things. So it has very succinct um, treatments of these. And so oftentimes I will direct people to the Belgic Confession first before the Heidelberg Catechism, just for a, a, a big picture sweep of what what um, what the Reformed faith is. Interestingly enough, uh, Guido de Bray, de Bray was, was influenced a lot by Calvin, um, and Calvin wrote a confession called the French Confession, and this is patterned after that, although de Bray's confession stands on its own. He was a student of Calvin, actually. That's right. In Geneva, and then he went back to the Netherlands to pastor... Uh, with his education, and and ended up writing this as a statement to the the French king, right? Not the French king, actually. Uh, oh, the Spanish king. Yes, right. Who had control over the Netherlands, Philip II, I believe. So uh, I, we'll come back. To, we'll come back to in a moment, like the 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 circumstances of in which this confession was written, but. Um, the things that I think the Belgic Confession are really, for me, are the help, most helpful is its treatment of the, the doctrine of the church and the sacraments, and in particular, the sacraments. And, and, the, and this is where the confession really reflects the influence of John Calvin, who had a very high view of the sacraments as means of grace, especially the Lord's Supper. Um, and 
yeah, the Belgic is a beautiful confession and that really emphasizes how God uses baptism in the supper as ways to nurture and grow our faith. And that, and that's just, again, a lot of people don't think about this in the Reformed tradition um, as being a sacramental tradition. Um, but the Belgic confession very much is, um, very much reflects John Calvin's view of the sacraments, which um, unapologetically, in my view, pushes our understanding of sacraments and church in the direction more of the Roman Catholic and the Lutherans, not all the specifics of their views, but just that no, like the sacraments are means of grace. They're objective means of grace that we really need um, for growth and maturity. So you said something there that I just want to tease out a little bit. You said that this confession and John Calvin have a high view of the sacraments. Can you, explain the difference between a high view of the sacraments and a low view of the sacraments. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and again, we'll, we'll do a whole, whole session on sacraments, but a low view of the sacraments would be that they're just mere signs and symbols, right? They're just teaching tools. It's just like, you know, like an illustration, right? Like, so, uh, you know, the supper just illustrates, you know, the forgiveness of sins, Jesus's body and blood. There's nothing really going on there. Right. Or baptism. It's like, it's like a baby dedication. Right. Or it's really about more what I do, you know, my confession of faith, where a high view of the sacraments is to is to not to it doesn't deny the human obedience character of the sacraments or that they even have a kind of pedagogical function to teach us. But but that God is active in them, uh, communicating grace to us. And that's what it means to have a high view of the sacraments now. There's different understandings of that grace, right? Between, say, Roman Catholic to to Lutheran to Reformed. But there really is an important element in which, and this is why we do the Lord's Supper every every Sunday, <laughs> because we believe that in the Supper, Jesus really meets us and that he nourishes us in faith and and encourages us, right? And feeds us. So that that's a high view of the sacraments. And we'll come back to the specifics in a in a later later lesson or session. So back to the church as well, you you think that the Belgic is is helpful in talking about how we understand the church. Yes. Um, in the Belgic, you have a number of questions or rather uh, articles that deal with the nature of the church, um, the nature of its government. We You get there the, the marks of the church, like, so what are the true, true marks of the church? Um, you know, uh, the pure preaching of God's word, the right administration of the sacrament, and the exercise of discipline, right? So there's a lot of material in the Belgic that really is helpful when you think about the practical life of the church. And so, and in particular, I think that the Belgic confession is really helpful for office bearers in the church. So oftentimes I'll teach these articles uh, to help people understand. So this is this is maybe the, you said it's the kind of the first document that you give people sometimes, the broad overview. Mm -hmm. um, but it also is a little bit of a high-level view of some of these things, because you don't necessarily need to know how a church is governed in order to come to a church. Exactly. But it's it's a helpful thing for the church to understand. Yes. The other, the other thing about the Belgic Confession, which I, I want to kind of close reflecting on, again, how has this document become... Uh, you might use that word operational, 
right? So on one point, it's operational in what you just said in that it helps govern, you know, leadership and thinking about the nature of the church. It helps us with our uh, understanding of worship and sacraments. But I also think that this is such a unique document in part because of the story. Now, we've already mentioned that the, this, the confession was written. It's actually a political document by which I mean that it was written to the king of Spain, Philip II, defending the reformed churches as legitimate churches. You know, so Spain and the king who had control of the Netherlands was thoroughly Roman Catholic and saw uh, the reformed churches as just sects, um, you know, break off and her- heretics. And one of the things that that Dubray in this document, and it and it follows the pattern of Calvin and his institutes, is it its attempt to say this is the faith, right? It's a common faith that we share with the Roman Catholics, right? And we use that word Catholic, not in Roman Catholic ways, but he's actually making an argument for the Catholicity of the Reformed faith and saying, you know, we're not the uh, we're not seditious, we're not undermining the the social order by having a, an alternative religion that undermines. And so on the one hand, there's a, there's a sense in which he's trying to establish like the truth, uh, the truthfulness of the, of the reformed faith as a true church, while also making clear unapologetically, according to scripture, we believe this, right? And so there's, um, there's a phrase that keeps getting used. It opens um, the confessions, which is, um, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths, dot, 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 right? And we believe in our mouths and we confess with our hearts. Um, I'm sorry, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. The, um, this is a quote of Romans 10, where Paul is talking about um, the gospel going out, the pro- proclamation of, of the gospel. And this is a phrase that gets repeated through the confession, which is, um, Dubray is saying, like, we believe, you know, this is what we believe. We are bearing witness. Right. And and what's interesting about or fascinating and sad all at the same time is that uh, Dubray actually was uh, put to death. He was he was arrested for disseminating this document and um, eventually was put to death. Right. So he becomes a martyr. Um, And so this that actually just adds a little bit of a kind of gravity to what it means to confess when you, you think about that, we believe and confess that there's consequences, that there are um, real life consequences for um, believing and confessing. And I, I, again, you go back to the early church. This is the pattern you see in the book of Acts, right? Um, after Jesus ascends into heaven and the spirit is poured out, the disciples, the apostles begin to preach, said, we believe, you know, like we we saw him, we touched him, it, you know, like they bear witness to who Jesus is. And in some cases, in many cases, they are, you know, punished or put to death or imprisoned for this. Um, so that I think is an important aspect of, of, you know, being confessional, right? Is that, that dimension of, of public testimony. Part of being the church in the world today is articulating what we believe. And that's, that's really important for the, the health and survival of a church is, is to articulate what we believe. Um, if we, we stop like articulating that we stop confessing that, um, we kind of lose our identity. We kind of lose our purpose of who are we and what are we about? 
So again, that act of believing and confessing is not simply an intellectual, like, these are the points of doctrine I believe about the Christian life, and I just hold them and, you know, kind of put them on the shelf. No, like, they are part of, as we teach them and we repeat them and we we communicate them to our kids, part of identity formation and our, our health as a church. It's also interesting the way that Debray wrote these these particular things down, and he wrote them really knowing that he could face the kind of punishment that he faced, and he chose these particular things. And I think that is somewhat reflected in the way that we embody our confessional identity as a church, because there are a lot of things in our church that we disagree about and that we yeah. don't hold as essential. But when it comes to these things, we we stand firm. Yeah. That's why I think it's, again, in the worship setting, we, we always have a confession of, of faith as part of um, our worship, right? It's usually Apostles' Creed, but different times of the year, we will put in different articles from the Belgic or the Heidelberg um, and, and just, again, part of that is, you know, this is, it's sort of like saying the pledge of allegiance, you know, that's how I think of it sometimes, you know, um, if you grew up saying the pledge of allegiance in grade school, right. There's a way that like that, this is our American identity. This is what it means to be who we are. And, and, um, it creates a kind of civic imagination. And obviously we have all kinds of dif- disagreements, um, but but in an even more profound way, I think that's the way that the creed and the confessions work is that when we we confess them together, they're like, this is the, the true source of our unity, which allows us, again, a, a bit of latitude and grace when we disagree in other ways. So that brings us to the, the third um, our document in the three forms of unity, which is the most well-known, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563 by primarily uh, Zacharias Ursinus and also by Caspar Olivianus. And it was actually commissioned, I believe, by one of the the princes in Germany um, as a means of trying to unite Lutheran and Reform together. Uh, but it, it certainly uh, reflects more of a Reform sensibility than a Lutheran one. Uh, but again, it was meant to be a compromise document, which again, all of these, do- all of these are, believe it or not, <laughs> Uh, compromised documents in one form or another. If you understand the history and background of you, there's all these schools that are pulling in, in extreme directions and the confessions often express a pretty middle-of-the-road position. But the Heidelberg Catechism is easily the most well-known and most beloved of the Reformed confessions, even amongst Presbyterians. Um, you know, it opens with the really beautiful line, you know, what is your only comfort in life and death? that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, um, growing up in the Reformed Church as a teenager, which I didn't, but I know Ben did, um, did you have to memorize that line and repeat it to the elders where you asked that question? Absolutely. Absolutely. Many times. Not just not just once, not just at our profession of faith, but that's, that's kind of a foundational... Um, thing growing up in the Reformed Church is we learn that that question and answer and, and a few more, but but that one is uh I mean I think people 
from uh, at all ages have felt a, a significant amount of comfort just from those words. And so this will often make it into our worship services as well, whether it's in a, you know, assurance of pardon or even in a confession. Um, the, uh, the, th- so the thing about the Heidelberg catechism is it's very explicitly a teaching tool, right? So if you think back to the different genres of these confessions, right? I'm using confessions in a pretty broad sense here, but you have the canons of Dort, which are a synodical document. They're not meant to be a teaching tool. And you have the Belgic confession, which is a confession. Um, and it has this political dimension of a statement of faith. It's, it can, it, it can be used as a teaching tool, but not explicitly where the catechism is a teaching tool in the sense that it has a question and answer format. So it asks a question and then it, then it provides um, an answer. And this brings up, I think, a really important um, topic related to, again, the ethos of being a Reformed church, which is that catechesis is a really important part of the spiritual life of the church. And by catechesis, you know, we often think of catechesis as being um, just for children, right? But catechesis really has to do with, it's, you know, we, you know, popular Christian language to use here is spiritual formation, right? How are people formed? Uh, But um, as a Reformed church, we are committed to the practice of catechesis. And and here, I I just want to make a distinction. Like when we think about catechesis, don't think simply in terms of, learning doctrine. I mean, it's never, it's not less than learning doctrine, but it's, I would say it's learning doctrine in a, in a really unique way, right? It's like learning doctrine, um, in your heart, not just in your head. Um, I always, I like to, um, define catechesis as, um, it's the moral and spiritual formation in the Christian truth, the story, the truth of the Christian story, which grips, grips, um, the deepest level of our imagination and thinking and desire. I'll say that one more time. Catechesis is the moral and spiritual formation in the truth of the Christian story, which grips us at the deepest level of, of imagination, thinking, and desire. I mean, think about what in, in Deuteronomy uh, 6 says about, you know, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? There's the whole person, right? So catechesis is really a formation of our whole lives in the truth of, of the Christian story. Um, and so that's a really important piece. And the catechism is really ordered towards like making that possible, not just for children, but also for adults. And that's actually why question answer one is so significant. It's not, what do you believe? Um, it's not even a, a doctrinal factoid. It's what is your comfort? Yes, that's key. That's a great point. Um, it, it, it goes to that, that you know, what is, it gets to the heart right away, right? Um, I think that understanding the, you know, what we mean by catech- catechesis or catechism is helpful by looking at the structure of the catechism. Um, so one of the things that you learn in catechism class is that the Kattelberg is three parts. Ben, what are the three parts as a good, well, catechized CRC uh, boy? Sin, salvation, and service. Right. Sin, salvation, and service. Another other categories um, are words that are used: guilt, 
grace, gratitude, right? We like alliteration. <laughs> but the idea is this, is that the flow of the question and answers, it starts with sin or our guilt before God, where there's number numerous questions related to the law, um, to the nature of sin, to how, you know, there's no way that we can turn to God on our own, that everybody has fallen. So we kind of lays out, I mean, the the first part of the catechism can be really rough um, if you don't keep reading on in those first um, those first uh, 10 questions in particular. Um, but the second part of the catechism um, kind of shifts from sin and guilt to grace or salvation. So we're sinners, um, but God has given us his grace um, and his salvation. And so there's numerous questions there. Um, and then the last part of the catechism um, looks beyond just the questions of sin and grace or sin and salvation to service or how we live, right? So in the light of what God has done and the grace he's given, um, how do we live? And right. So this is often called uh, the gratitude portion because the understanding is that we live as a response of, of gratitude to God's grace. So there's 11 questions on our guilt. And then there's, man, a lot of questions on that deliverance section. Right. More than the sin section. Yeah. So that's another 64 questions. And then it goes all the way down to question and answer 129. So another 50 or so questions on that, on that salvation or that service component. And, and a really important note too, is that the first question does not start with sin. It starts with salvation, right? Because again, you know, how do we, you know, how do we know? I mean, you it's hard to even know yourself a sinner in the full sense. You can't really grapple with the true depth of your sin if you don't know that God is going to save you from it, right? I mean, it's just like, you know, how do we, you know, it's the, the, you know, as an illustration, how do we, the kinds of, like, when we f- hear the hardest things about ourselves, like the m- mistakes we make or ways we need to improve how we live. It's really hard to hear that from people we know that don't love us. We're prone to just shut it out and say, well, they're, you know, but when you know somebody loves you and cares for you and they're sharing something, not because they want to hurt you, but because it's the truth, you're open to hearing it. And it's, it's so much, it's so true in, in our life of grace, right? Like it's the grace of Christ that meets us. And it's that reality of sin. Like we already, you know, we might already have, senses of guilt and shame and all that. But like, it's only when we have that sense that, you know, you know, um, my true belonging is in Jesus that I can really grapple with the, the true depths of my own sinfulness. And that's what the catechism wants us to see too. That's question and answer too, right? What must I know to live in the, in the joy of this comfort, live and die in the joy of this comfort. And it's first how great my sin and misery are, which is what the catechism lays out, but then it's how am I delivered from this guilt and how do I live in response to that? It's not about even just explaining our guilt. It's all about getting back to that comfort. Now, one of the, going back to the catechism piece in terms of this as a teaching tool, a couple years after uh, the catechism was written, there was an uh, introduction into a new edition of it um, of Lord's days. In other words, the catechisms, uh, was broken down, you know, it's, um, 
there's 129 questions altogether, right? So what what the uh, the authors or the editors did is they broke each question into a Lord's Day. In other words, um, the idea was, and, and this is the case still in some Reformed churches that have evening services, where traditionally in the Reformed faith, uh, in the CRC especially, um, you would have Sunday morning worship and then you have Sunday evening worship. And Sunday evening worship was meant usually to be uh, preaching on um, the catechism, right? So there was 52 Sundays, and so we broke the catechism into these different sections. And the importance of that as just an observation is just to say that um, this is the heart and center of the Christian faith, all of these questions. And we just need to always be keeping them in mind and reviewing them, going back again and again. It's not like we, you know, oh, I read it, I got it, I'm moving on now. No, there's a way that we kind of need to renew ourselves in that reality. Um, so I want to just break down a little bit, though, um, the different components of the catechism. And um, again, this question of, well, what does it mean to be a fully formed Christian? You know, what do I need to know about who God is and what Jesus did for me, who I am? And the catechism is great on this point. And so what you have, and we've already talked about this a little bit, is the first um the first section, really, questions 1 through 22, they deal with the categories of sin and grace, right? <sighs> sin and grace, how I'm saved, you know, that I'm a sinner, how I'm saved, the nature of true faith. But then what ends up happening is in question um, 23 through 58, there's a shift and um, there's a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. So, so you know, we say that the Apostles' Creed most every Sunday here. I used to say the creed with my kids on their way to school. I'd, you know, we would recite it um, as I drove them to school. Um, and it's such an essential uh, statement of faith, right? Because it, it really encapsulates the story of the Christian faith, right? And I think this is, again, so important about the catechism and the nature of Christian belief. It's, it's not like a, a series of bullet points of like, oh, I believe this about God and this. It's a story. You know, we believe in God, the father, the creator of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ, his only son. Right. And it's a story. The creed is a story. And so the catechism then shifts from the really specific character of salvation to the story of faith of the Catholic faith. Right. The reformed Catholic faith. And then you get a commentary. And the structure is really important here, too, because what you'll you'll get is there'll be a question, which is something like, well, what does it mean to say? that Jesus was ascended into heaven. What do you understand by this? And then a question or two later, it will follow up with, how does it benefit you that Jesus ascended into heaven? And this is, I think, really important because like, there's the meaning question of like, well, what do we understand these different articles of the creed to mean? Um, but again, it's not just theoretical. It's not just in our head. Also, how does it benefit me you know, as, as one who puts my faith and trust in God? So you have uh, the commentary on the creed, and then you have um, a section on the church and the sacraments, and then you have a section on the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, right? So if you think about it, right, you've got sin and grace, salvation in the beginning, the creed, the role of church and sacraments in our life as essential, the Ten Commandments, and the, and the Lord's Prayer, right? So again, the Reformed, um, this is really important, like the commandments we don't, we're not saved by keeping the commandments, but the commandments are given, you know, we talk about the third use of the law. The commandments are given for our benefit, for our edification, you know, 
the commandments of God reflect reality as it is. And so each, there's an article or two on each of the commandments talking about what it means, um, not just the negative, but also the positive. And then um, a commentary, a, qu- a couple of questions on each of the articles of the Lord's Prayer. So that's that's a pretty interesting point that the Ten Commandments section, even though that's about the law, that's not in the guilt section. That's not in the sin section. That's in the exactly. gratitude section. That's a great point. Um, that's So the commandments then, our obedience to the commandments is a response to God's grace, right? Not, we're not obedient to the commandments in order to earn God's grace, um, but as a response to it. And I, you know, you see this as well in the life of Jesus. Like I, I just love the story of, of Jesus's baptism and temptation, right? He, he goes, he's baptized, you know, the spirit descends, the father from heaven said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then in Mark's gospel, it says he was thrust into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil tempts him to be disobedient to the commands, right? But Jesus goes into the desert, not seeking to earn his favor with the father. He goes into the desert knowing that he's God's beloved son. Right. And so it's because of that, he knows he's God's beloved son, that he doesn't have to disobey and test God in order to prove himself. And and so obedience comes from a different place. Right. And so that's so important that the Christian life and obedience isn't motivated by the law. Right. I'm not motivated by fear or anxiety or that God's going to punish me. Um, It should be motivated by a sense of I'm God's beloved. The Lord, you know, I'm a, a child of the household. And because of that, though, because I belong to the household, I should live in this way, right? So so that's a really important point. Um, and it really kind of brings us um, to a couple, I just want to reflect um, a couple aspects of spirituality and ethos um, of, that really come from this catechism and, and really the Reformed faith as a whole. Um, the first one is just, it's a grace-motivated life, right? That that the Christian life is one that's motivated by, in a deep, deep sense, by God's grace for us. Um, not by the law, not by experience, uh, like spiritual experiences or things like that. Um, and, and that's just so important. Um, the second point is this, is that, that the Christian life is framed by what I'll just say, it's the, whole, the life of the Holy Trinity. It's a Trinitarian spirituality. Um, that's what you see again and again in the Heidelberg and the other confessions is that our lives being part of the household of God is, is that, you know, we're, we're in the father's house and we're, um, you know, in the son and the spirit has been poured out in our hearts. And so we live in this dynamic reality of God's love as father, son, and spirit. And I, and I think it's, you know, we can just have such a flattened view of God and God's activity in our life a lot of times. And what's beautiful about the confession, the, the catechism is it really draws us as we reflect on the different articles into God's triune life. So we've talked about the, each of the confessions really. Um, and these are kind of the beginning of the doctrines that we believe. Um, can you talk a little bit about what is our church do or what does our church 
how does our church handle situations where people uh, don't know uh, if they believe these things or don't, maybe they even disagree with some of these things? What does that look like in our church? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things I, I often say to people coming into our church is is that you don't necessarily have to be able to cross every T and dot every I of tulip in order to become a member of the church. Now you do in order to be an office bearer who have responsibility for for teaching and and the and the governance of the church. But you know, the Catholic and, and this is where I, I often emphasize the Catholicity of the faith. Like like if you don't like I mean, if you, you know, disagree with the creed, right, which is at the heart of the Heidelberg Catechism, I mean, like you're basically putting yourself outside of like Christianity in general, right? Um, I'm not saying that we set the bar low, but there is a way that, you know, to belong to this church, I often will say is it means that you need to be an evangelical Catholic or Reformed Catholic. In other words, that you affirm the core creedal aspects of historic Christianity um, from a Protestant perspective, right? So those doctrines of grace are really key. Now, where people tend to have disagreements with our church um, would be generally around the sacraments, especially the sacrament of baptism, and then also the doctrines of election as related to uh, unconditional election in particular. Um, and those are those are tricky, right? And those are difficult. But, you know, there's plenty of people that are in our church that wrestle with those, um, but there's still space for them. Um, and, it, and that's the thing I always invite people like doctrine, the doctrines of the church reflect, not to get too theoretical, um, presuppose a sociology. By, by sociology, what I mean is that the way that the community and the church is ordered and functions, how we get along with one another, how we interact with one another. And so, again, this is part of that operational piece, like the doctrines of grace, the reality of the sacraments, our vision of God's mission in the world, these are all operational. They shape the sociology, the way you experience the community. Um, you know, when infant baptism is a good example, there's been numerous people who've come in and they, they're they skeptical about baptizing infants because they see how it's done in other churches and it doesn't seem to have real meaning or anything. But the way we do it here is different. Like there's a different sociology that supports it. And, um, and it's, it's more uh, authentic and robust and biblical in how it's practiced. And so like, I just invite people to come and participate and to understand and, and wrestle with these things. And, you know, I, we're all in process, right? I mean, one of the unique things about this church is that we have people from all across the boards. Like I didn't grow up in the reformed church. I've been in lots of different church contexts and I think that, again, that's where I always want to emphasize the, the, the center, which is the Catholic center, and invite people. And over time, I think people come to understand a little bit more. Changing your view of doctrine isn't simply a matter of like, oh, I've read the Bible and I've read these texts and I've made up my mind. I mean, the, again, we're always like really invested personally, existentially in certain beliefs that shaped and formed us. And it's hard for us just to change overnight. And so that's a process. And so I always invite people into the process. And for those of you who are listening to this, for maybe for the first time, we would love to talk to you more about this process as well. Um, these conversations are an invitation uh, to talk more about 
what we believe and and to hear what it might look like for you to uh, believe those things with us. So thank you very much, and uh, we will be back uh, with the next episode soon. Thanks.